Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Man, I haven't talked with you guys in weeks. I haven't been doing intros and outros. I had a bunch of these in the bank. I had a busy tour. I had a zillion projects going on. Got a zillion more go- starting that I'm I'm going to be sharing with you guys. And what a difference four weeks can make, huh? Wow. Holy cow. I hope you guys are healthy, safe, and as uh, good as you possibly can be in body, spirit, and mind. And I, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't really known what to say about much of any of this stuff. I haven't had a chance to really talk to the experts, the people that I respect on this yet. I've been uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, caught me uh, by surprise as much, if not more, than it did everybody else. And I was underprepared, like so many of us. And I'm uh, I'm still kind of sorting out um, what to do. I'm I'm uh, in Wisconsin myself, hunkering down for a while, and uh, just working on creating tons of uh, tons of content. Uh, I've, it's I've been working toward increasing my my digital platform and everything else anyway. And so um, I was already taking a, a, a quick little, I was slowing down my tour for a month or so to work on stuff. And, um, and then, uh, and then the world slowed down my tour for me. There's no, no live entertainment because of the coronavirus. So I will be doing some special episodes coming up. I'm going to, I'm going to be doing the first ever remote. Here we are, uh, podcasts. I'm going to be getting a whole bunch of guests. I'm going to be recording a bunch of these. I already have a bunch scheduled. By the time that you're hearing these, maybe there's already some even up on on YouTube. I'm going to be doing a lot of uh, Corona adjacent um, material, so not not the stuff uh, that that everyone's hearing. The same kind of stuff on on the news and the same hot takes over and over again. And I'll, although it's it's very important to understand what's going on and to um, and and to you know follow follow the CDC guidelines and all of those sorts of things. There's just a lot of, uh, there's a lot of other things that we, we can be talking about, uh, too. And so, uh, much in the same way that we don't really talk about politics much on this show. And when we do, it's like, it's often things like, what are the genetic underpinnings of, of, uh, that, that prime and influence the way a, a, a person's political beliefs or the way that they vote? That sort of thing. So, I have um, I have some um, some ideas uh, that I'll be sharing at the at the end of this episode. But this is a this is a really good time to um, to support all the artists and entertainers out there that you're fond of. You don't you know there's a zillion people right now asking for support on Patreon and stuff like that. A lot of a lot of comedians um, like like myself that are that make all their living. Um, from touring are all of a sudden having to figure this out and uh, you know there's obviously so many people in such a horrible tight situation so one thing that you can do to help people out for uh, for free you have the time you're at home you're in front of your computer this is the perfect time to go and review that that thing that you liked that album that you liked. even leaving a nice YouTube comment for um, some of your favorite bands or especially the lesser known uh, like hidden gems that you've found uh, you have no idea even how much it can make a comedian's day to read a nice YouTube comment um, to to retweet 
something, to follow someone on Instagram that you enjoy. There's a lot of ways to show appreciation, even if times are tight for you. Financially, spread spread the word to people about the the kind of stuff that you're uh, that you're getting into, what, what you're appreciating um, in podcasting and in television and music, and especially the stuff that uh, the you know the smaller guys um, are obviously the ones that are going to be struggling a bit more in this time, and and they're they're the more interesting finds and and gems out there anyway. So. Um, so I highly recommend doing that. You know, there's a there's a zillion comics that have albums out there that you can even listen to if you have a Spotify account or whatever you you get your stuff from. There's a lot of free content for you out there, and, and an easy way of giving back is just writing a review, right? Writing a nice positive review and uh, and spreading the word. Maybe me- making a social post about some of the things that you're enjoying, some of the books that you're reading, some uh, just anything, anything like that. Um, be creative. Uh, a lot of uh, there's a lot of people in a position where you're killing a lot of time and just consuming a lot of content. That content that's being created takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of a lot of people have put their heart into that very content, and um, and are often underappreciated for it. And a lot of them um, are uh, uh, are in a bit of a pickle right now. So that's something that you can do uh, to help out. And one thing um, that I'm grateful for is last year I started a partnership with The Great Courses Plus, which I have been extremely um, fortunate to work with and trying to find more um, more partners that were in line with a science podcast and with my with my message. I, uh, I connected with The Great Courses Plus, their online teaching institution and I've been telling you guys about this for about a year now and how great I think they are. I've actually been using them for about seven to ten years myself. I, I go I go way back with the great course uh, courses plus company and it's it's how I how I know a lot of the uh, uh, information that I have um, today and so now you know there's a lot of time in front of the computer. I believe me, you guys are gonna burn through all those Netflix programs and everything else soon, and and you know your your mind's just gonna rot if you don't if you just passively take in um, you know stuff that isn't engaging. And this is a great way to stimulate your mind. This is the best time that there has ever been there's a zillion different courses you know and they're doing updates with corona stuff as well but you know there's also things that you're going to have to consider when all of this is said and done there's there's uh, and and other things that are relevant right now like there's a course that i uh, that i like the psychology of human behavior that is an important thing to be learning about right now in in navigating this quickly uh shifting landscape and so you can uh, you can now you have a chance to make learning a part of your daily routine with the great courses plus they're giving my listeners this great offer a free trial and it's only ten dollars a month when you sign up for a quarterly plan that's the cheapest it has ever been is right now which is when you're at home the best time you could possibly be um, consuming this stuff and have the time to do it so get all the details at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash here we are remember that's thegreatcoursesplus.com 
slash here we are and that's how you support your own mental health and support me um and i I love having a partner like this and uh i'm so happy that i haven't um uh, uh, that i had this relationship um for over a year now and i've already been taking these courses and i feel like i was kind of uh um uh, uh, i'm prepared for this this new world where a lot of our education is going to be going online uh in a hurry even after all this is said and done um this this might be this this might be the catalyst for a big shift in a in a great number of things and so i i believe education is incredibly important and i think digital education is going to be it's only gotten bigger since I started educating myself online a decade or so ago, and uh, it and it's only going to blow up more. And so, so this is the time. Go to greatcourses.plus.com/slash/here we are. And this is um, this is one more episode from before all this, uh, old from the bank. So I know some of you are uh, uh, some of you are are kind of uh, wanting to learn about other things and not just hear about everything that's going on in the news um, 24-7 and, and hearing the same stuff over and over again. So uh, so this is an old one. Uh, you'll, get to, you'll get to learn some different topics. And then I'm going to make sure when I have these special Corona episodes that they're going to be a little more uh, unique than everything that is going on in the news. You're going to have um, some interesting uh, uh, takes that that um that no one else you're talking to has heard a lot of us are calling one another and comparing information and everything else and um i'm I'm gonna give you a lot of interesting information a lot of things to talk about and this is a really exciting time in terms of a new appreciation for science it has never in my lifetime been more important for people to have an appreciation for science and there's a whole lot of people uh, waking up to it and realizing just how important it is to listen to experts, to to study things, to investigate things. Um, these these are uh, this is the, more than just uh, dealing with one virus. Uh, this is this is way bigger than one pandemic. This this is has major implications in all of our lives. Uh, science, science has the tools to make every aspect of our life better, and uh, and it has has the best shot, in my opinion, to uh, saving humanity. Um, and I I don't take that lightly. Uh, there's there's going to be more problems after this pandemic is over, and so uh, so now's the time. It's it's time to educate ourselves. It's time to spread the uh the importance of educating yourself and um it's it's time to start having having these conversations and no longer just crossing our fingers and hoping other people are just going to figure it all out um for us so um so with that i hope you enjoy uh today's episode and um, man, I hope you're doing as well as you can out there. So thank you all for all of the support through, um, through the five and a half years that I've been doing this show. And I really um, hope that I'll have your 
continued support moving forward through this. So uh, enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Psychology at the Rhode Island College. Dr. Megan Samaraki is joining me today. Thank you, Megan, for joining me. Thank you. And for having uh, one of my new favorite last names, Samaraki. <laughs> it's yeah. a good one. I'm excited to have you on. You were just on Stand Up Science very yeah. recently. Did you enjoy it? Did you have fun? It was a lot of fun. I've never prepped in a green room before. It was very <laughs> exciting. It was a very good show. It was, uh, we did, a, was that a Saturday afternoon show? Yeah. I think? Yeah. 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 Pretty good crowd for a Saturday afternoon. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. Stand up science is um, is one of my uh, favorite things that I've ever put together. It's going quite well. You yourself, you have your own podcast called the Learning Scientist Podcast. I want to make sure that we don't forget to talk about that. So let's just start with talking a little bit about your podcast for people and what they can do, and then hopefully they'll. They'll just switch over to yours and not even listen to the rest of our conversation. Yeah, yeah. So that's a podcast where um, a group of cognitive psychologists, myself and and a team of us who are technically international. Um, Carolina Cooper Tetzel is originally from Germany and now she's in Scotland. Hmm. So we can call ourselves international. But we just get on the podcast and chat about learning stuff. So how can teachers improve learning in the classroom, K through 12 teachers or those in higher ed? How can students try to study effectively on their own? Um, how can parents help their kids? What are issues related to homework? Sometimes we have little episodes, we call them bite-sized research episodes, where we'll just sort of give a brief overview of a research paper, dig into that one that one topic or that one question and explain the data. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And we, for a while, had some funding to do a few episodes a month. And now we've slowed down and relaxed a little bit, but still, still try to produce one at least once a month. These podcasts are a lot of work. They are a lot of work. My... Um, I know I mentioned to you before, my husband is our, our poor editor. And so he, um, he'll get the, the files. And I know, especially when he's busy at work in his busy season, I'll say, remember, I need you to do that podcast. I'll cook dinner. You do the podcast. And he's like, okay, okay. He's great, though. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. I, um, and you don't have to pay him. I have to I, pay my editor. I don't have to pay him. Um, but the, the, actually, it's more the team of us. Um, so I should mention, it's um, Dr. Althea Kaminsky. She's at St. Bonaventure University in Western New York. Uh, Dr. Cindy Niebel, who is, she's located in St. Louis, but she's teaching in a doctoral program at Vanderbilt. And then I mentioned Dr. Carolina Cooper Tetzel is in Dundee. And it's the three of them that insist that we that we pay my husband for his time, <laughs> um, which I feel a little guilty about since we file taxes together. But sure. um, so it's, you know, sort of a weird, a weird setup, but um, we try to keep it formal so that you know he's he's not just doing it because he's married to me hmm. and what do you do at uh, at the college here i am a cognitive psychologist a professor um, rhode island college is 
I think great because we combine teaching and research. So, and a lot of schools do that, but my teaching load is heavier than what you would see at some of the bigger research institutions, certainly heavier than what you'll find at Harvard or Yale or, you know, Boston University, Washington University in St. Louis, where I did my master's, Purdue, where I did my my doctoral work. So I'm teaching usually three sometimes four classes a semester. Hmm. But in addition to that, I'm running my own research lab and the productivity tends to be a little bit slower for the reasons I just mentioned, but I get to involve a lot of undergraduate students in my research, occasionally master's students, and I get to study the science of learning, which is really fun, and and apply it in my classroom so the two really feed off of one another. Hmm. I've uh, said this during Stand Up Science, I've said this on the podcast before, but I had one of the one of the most frustrating um, things that I did was I took an online class um, called Learning How to Learn, hmm. I believe was the name of it. Mm-hmm. It was terrific. I learned a bunch. And then afterwards was just very upset that I had just learned how to learn at the age of like 35. Mm-hmm. And it... it uh, it's very unfortunate that that's not like day one of school, that that's not like first, second grade stuff. Yeah. So, well, so there's two things there. One is you're right. We don't do enough of that. And I think that's a really big issue. And I would love to change that. And so I mentioned we have the podcast, but really the podcast is just one small piece of a larger project um, called The Learning Scientists. And so our website is www.learningscientists, with an S, org. And there are a lot of um, free resources on the website. Um, We've been uh, lucky enough to be able to fund little projects here and there. And so we have a blog where we write about research and then, of course, the podcast. But we also have um, what we would call static materials, so posters that describe uh, learning strategies that students can use on their own or teachers can use in the classroom. The idea being that these students can try to teach themselves how to learn. And then we've actually translated them into, I think, 13 different languages. Though I will say the languages that we have are not for any reason other than just someone volunteered to translate and we started working with them. So Hmm. there are definitely languages that we should have that we don't. And then some maybe uh, languages that people might say, why do you have that? That's somewhat obscure. Um, So we have both Brazilian, Portuguese, and Portuguese, which sort of just off the cuff wouldn't be the thing that I would think of first, mm-hmm. although I'm glad we have it. Um, we do not have Chinese. So it's it, it's sort of um, haphazardly put together, but that's the idea to try to teach students how to learn. But at the same time, I will say when I teach cognitive psychology and research methods, I'm mostly teaching juniors and seniors, and they are typically frustrated for the same reasons that you just mentioned. Why did no one explain this to me before? Why is this the first time I'm learning about it? And, and I say to them, well, you know, better late than never. And, you know, I at least try to teach it at the beginning of the course. And then when we get to the memory unit and cognitive, which is usually almost the end of the semester, I can say, see, I gave you some of this before. I didn't wait to the end of the semester. Mm-hmm. But frustrated by this, I actually um, designed a first-year seminar around the science of learning. And it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. First-year students, so freshmen in college, not first or second grade, like you say, but certainly better than juniors and seniors. And I was trying to work with them to teach them how to study. And I realized a lot of the things that I was explaining and trying to integrate was more difficult because they were not experts in learning yet. And so I actually would not be surprised if some of those students I had in their first year, I'm sure they gained something out of it. 
But I would not be surprised if they said, how come no one ever taught me this before in my class three years later? And I'd say, actually, if you were in my seminar, hmm. I think when you're a novice at something, actually, we know this from the research, when you're a novice, you tend to focus on surface details. Um, so if I talk about retrieval, for example, which I'm sure we'll talk about retrieval practice, that's my my main area. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. I, I've, <laughs> I've been waiting all day to talk about retrieval practice. Yeah. So um, retrieval practice is all about bringing information to mind. And it doesn't it can look a lot of different ways it can look like someone i mean i'm practicing retrieval right now i don't have anything in front of me i'm just explaining stuff mm -hmm. um but it could look like writing out what you remember it could be drawing what you can remember explaining it to someone all these different things um the process the underlying structure is that you're bringing information to mind and i know in that first year seminars i teach my students this and then later on they might say oh well retrieval practice involves writing focusing on that surface feature, the fact that it looks like someone's writing. And they actually at some point thought that if they copied their notes, that was retrieval practice because that's writing. Mm. And I said, well, no, that's actually a, a surface feature that doesn't matter. Um, experts are better at getting that underlying structure, which in this case would be the uh, mental processes that you're engaging in. Mm. So I do think it's not something we can just sort of teach in first or second grade and then say, great, you know it now. Well, you've, you'll have it for the rest of your life. I do think it takes some time. Hmm. Um, uh, uh, well, I'm taking notes right now. Is that is that a no-no? <laughs> am I supposed to take notes? I'm, I'm confused now. You're more than welcome to take notes. Um, I, it, one thing I've been thinking about in terms of some retrieval stuff lately is, is I have to kind of quote-unquote come up with things on the fly all of the time on stage mm -hmm. and a lot of times more than improvisation it's retrieval i would say rather than like creating a new thought that i have never that's never crossed through my mind before i'm usually it's uh after this podcast today i'm going to have a seven hour drive to buffalo and i'll be kind of mentally rehearsing upcoming podcasts upcoming shows things like that conversations with uh with friends or business partners or whatever that i might have in the future and i i feel like a lot of those um a lot of that uh, those simulations that you're that you're running are kind of getting stored and then uh, sort of filed away a little bit and then when you do find yourself in the appropriate context then it pops into your head and it almost you kind of have have now forgotten that three weeks earlier you were in your car mentally rehearsing all of these things but that's where it's coming from yeah exactly so so you're practicing retrieval all the time it sounds like and that's probably why you can remember so much so much stuff yeah retrieval practice is one of the strongest ways that we can improve learning and memory and it's not just about rote memorization so you're not in your car rehearsing exactly what you want to say on stage at some specific time and place in the future you're not trying to memorize a script really mm -hmm. what you're trying to do is remember that information and make it flexible mm -hmm. and 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 durable in your mind so that you then when you're up there it'll pop into the, your head at the right moment and and you'll be able to use it and apply it in whatever new context you're in and that's exactly what retrieval does mm -hmm. so sometimes it gets a bad a bad rep because we think of it as trying to 
memorize or um, trying to sort of prepare for specific questions on a test. And when that's Columbus not what it is. When Columbus sailed the ocean blue or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas, you know, you can remember that fact or maybe we maybe we don't remember the year. We're not going to worry about it. Um, I'm not going to try because I'd probably get it wrong it, now. It was one of the biggest things that drove me crazy in school is exactly what you're saying, yeah. which is like this stuff seems very trivial. It's not. Mm -hmm. And in my adult life, it's like I'm, I'm a concept guy. Throw a concept at me. Yep. I'll remember it forever. And retrieval does help us learn those concepts. It can help us learn the facts, too. And, and sometimes we do need to remember information. Um, so my sister is um, she's a medical resident at George Washington. She's in um, her OB residency, and she had to memorize a whole lot of stuff to get there. And that's good. I'm glad she has a bunch of stuff memorized because otherwise, you know, we'd, be, we'd all be in a lot of trouble, right? Mm -hmm. But um, she also needs to be able to flexibly use it and apply it. And so there's something to be said for learning sort of that base information, but then also learning in a more meaningful way so that you're better able to apply what you know in new contexts. And retrieval helps with both of those things. It's not just memorizing stuff. And I do want to say, I, I imagine this is obvious to any listener, but just in case it's not, something that is an important part of uh, what I do is adult learning, uh, lifelong learners, mm -hmm. people that, that this isn't this isn't stuff that's just like, well, I'm not in college anymore, so I don't need to know how to retrieve <laughs> things or, or remember things anymore. This is, this is something that we can all apply when reading a new book or, um, or watching a TED talk or what have you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And even, I mean, trying to remember all of the things that we need to do in a day and learning learning new information, say, with our kids. So one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast is actually to ask your kids at the end of the day, what did you learn in school today? Because as they're telling you the story, they're retrieving some pieces from school. And ideally, that's now going to help them remember those pieces later on. Um, so we're, we're doing this all the time. I hated that, by the way, oh. when I was a kid, a lot of, a lot of pressure. Oh, it, so it, it'd be like, you know, I'd just get out of church and I was just like... Uh, sleeping or whatever or pretending I wasn't sleeping the whole time and then afterwards my <laughs> mother would always be like so what did you learn and I'd have to make something up make something <laughs> make something up but but it is an important part yeah well and I, I I remember loving it after school I don't remember loving that after church maybe no one asked me what I learned in church maybe no one no one seemed overly concerned about that what what about as you're saying it it occurred to me, so I have uh, I have things like, take for example, um, I'll be driving today and I'll probably, I, I have like a bunch of ideas for some marketing aspects of my show or something like that that'll mm -hmm. pop into my head. I'll call my assistant and talk her ear off for like a half hour or something or an hour about it. Maybe at the end, I should be saying like, so what do what do we do with this or what did we talk about or some sort of at the end of the conversation, make sure that there's some retrieval for it. Not, not for just for her, but for both of us. So we're both kind of remembering. Yeah. Yeah. And a summary and sort of saying, okay, next I'm going to do this. This is the, the action sort of mm -hmm. reflecting on the conversation can be very helpful, both for remembering what's going on. Although in that case, I mean, memorizing a list of things to do might not be as essential if you can take notes and keep track of your notes. Then mm -hmm. you just have a, 
a list. But, you know, a lot of times with conversations, the conversation's going here, going there, we're throwing out ideas. At the end, even just sort of doing the synthesis and organization and saying, okay, here are our next steps, that can be very helpful in terms of trying to move forward. Mm-hmm. And so actually today in my cognitive psychology class, the topic was metacognition. So um, learning about essentially our thinking about our own thinking Mm -hmm. and specifically how do I know what I know? So it it gets very meta, right? Metacognition. So, you know, you know stuff and then you know you know stuff. And there's also stuff you know that you don't know you know it. And then stuff that you think you know that really you don't and all of those different pieces. Um, And a lot of that really is sort of monitoring your own your own knowledge and monitoring what what you are able to remember and retrieve and then making some sort of control decision. So I don't think I know this very well. I'm going to continue studying in this way or I do think I know it. I'm going to go hang out with my friends instead. And so there's a lot of this sort of monitoring and then making decisions. And I think sort of summarizing at the end and coming up with a list of concrete things to move forward helps helps with the synthesis, but also helps with that sort of control. Like, okay, we we figured all this stuff out. What do we do with it now? Mm. Uh, one thing that I do quite a bit that I'm sure sometimes um, bores or alienates half the people that need to talk with me, um, <laughs> but, but I'll be hanging out with friends and I often find myself um, kind of recalling some things from past podcasts or things like that that I've or a, a book that I've been reading lately. And part of the reason why I do it, not just to show off how much I know, but I, it also it helps me so much to um, and, and I think I actually have pretty decent retention just because this is a regular practice in my life mm-hmm. where, where I have to figure out how to say this stuff in my own words mm-hmm. on stage. I, I, I workshop it, you know, people don't know that sometimes they're just kind of my guinea pig, but, but, um, or, or my, my little audience of one that I'm, uh, hashing out some ideas with, but, um, being able to recall a couple of things that I've learned recently and run it by somebody and then, you know, it comes up again in a conversation a couple of weeks later and I kind of tweak how I explain it a little bit and it makes me think more about it afterwards too. Like, did mm-hmm. I explain that right? And it's the, the retention difference is astronomical compared to just say reading a book, closing it, putting it on the shelf, never talking to anyone about it, never thinking about it again. Absolutely. So you're you're now hitting on a second principle. Mm. So we've got retrieval practice, and then we also have spacing, or sometimes people call it distributed practice. And those two in combination, at least the thinking is now that those two are kind of the gold standard. They're extremely effective strategies that we can use to try to learn and remember information, and they are both extremely durable. They're also really, really old. It's not some some brand new things. Spacing was originally studied by um, an individual call, uh, named uh, Herman Ebbinghaus, who was doing his work in the late 1800s. He was the first, well, he he's known as the first memory researcher, although my, um, my master's advisor, Roddy Rodiger at Washington University in St. Louis went through some archives in St. Louis and thinks he found a physicist who did a memory study before this guy did, so, hmm. but we're not gonna worry about that. Um, I think his name was Neifer or something, and my advisor was all excited but he's known as the first memory researcher 
spacing effects, late 1800s. And then the earliest paper that I can find on retrieval practice is from 1909. Mm. So this is not new. It's not like we just figured this out and now we can go tell everybody in the world to use it. We just, for whatever reason, and actually I have some some thoughts, but the science of learning isn't really making it into mainstream education. And I think some of it is that we're so siloed. Uh, Academics do a lot of writing in journal articles that no one is ever going to read, or we read it amongst ourselves. But I mean, those journal articles are difficult to get through. We have years of training, and Mm -hmm. they need to be because we need the very specific methodology and statistics in order to continue moving the science forward. But there's no way, or I shouldn't say no way, but it seems unlikely that a teacher say a third grade teacher is going to do all of the things that that person needs to do during the day and teaching is a a, a very difficult and strenuous job and then to go home and try to read a century worth of literature that they're not trained to read that that's absurd so academics really need to do a, a lot more of this mm-hmm. talking about the science in an accessible way so that we can all sort of continue using it. And that's one of the reasons we started the Learning Scientist website was to try to make the science more accessible and create a community of teachers and researchers and researchers from different domains. So there's tons of different disciplines that all study education and no one ever talks to one another. Trying to bring all of that together so that we can have bi-directional communication about what we need to be doing in the classroom and in the lab. I, I mean, it's a big part of why I do what I do um, and, and try to communicate these ideas to the public in an accessible way. I, but now with uh, in terms of the spacing, as I'm trying to now retrieve um, some information that mm-hmm. I once knew, I mean, this is all being backed up by neuroscience now mm-hmm. in, the, in the way in which um, s- certain neural firings happen happen once. And then if it happens again, like, a week later, these things start kind of wiring together a little yeah. bit, and then and then it happens again a few weeks later, and now it's kind of this this um, neural pattern that that is like information that's stored, that's a memory that can be retrieved. Mm-hmm. Yep, you caught me. I got on my soapbox and never explained what the thing was. <laughs> um, so yeah, spacing is this idea of spacing it out over time or distributing it over time, and you need little spaces. It's almost like you need to forget the information a little bit so that you can remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the more you space out information and the more repetitions you get over time, the more durable and more the more flexible you are with the information. Mm. So retrieving can be really good and you want success to be relatively high, although there is some research suggesting that when you unsuccessfully try to retrieve something, that that's better than not trying to retrieve at all. Um, so f- quote unquote failed retrieval can be effective. But you do need to eventually work your way up to where you're successfully retrieving information. Doing that in spaced intervals is kind of the gold, the gold standard. Mm. It's particularly useful. I mean, there's there's kind of similar stuff with how how different habits or drug dependencies or whatever are kind of learned in the same way where the first time it might have been fun or whatever, but it doesn't really. T- and then if it's spaced out in just the right way, it's this, this is why, uh, this is why people relapse mm-hmm. <laughs> so bad because it's been so long or it, it's been a while, but then when they have it, that those pathways were still there because they formed and, um, and are ready to, Boot right back up for you. Yeah. And, but but ideas, facts, memories, concepts are working in the same way. 
Yeah, yeah. So spacing out the repetitions and sort of forgetting a little bit and then coming back to it. And every time you do that, you tend to sort of think of it in a different way. It's not always going to be exactly the same. So it's it's very much different from this sort of kill and drill concept Mm -hmm. um, where you're just reciting something over and over and over again. Um, That's not that's not really the same as bringing it to mind and like you said putting it into your own words sort of forgetting it and then and then re-retrieving it again mm. so one of the ways i explain how space processing uh, space practice works really well in terms of our mental processing to my students is to have them try to solve a problem just like a math problem in their head. I'll give them three numbers that are on, you know, on the higher end. So not just like, you know, two plus four or something, but maybe 23 and 56, three numbers. And I have them sit there and try to solve that problem in their head. And they'll sit there for a little while and they're doing the calculations and they're trying to figure it out. They'll come to an answer and then I'll say, okay, now I want you to solve another problem. And I give them the exact same thing. I say, raise your hand when you know the answer now. And they sort of make a face and they just raise their hand right away. And I say, well, how did you do that? And they say, well, I just, you know, you literally just told us that. So I remembered the answer. Mm-hmm. When you space, you have to solve the problem again. When you're massing or sort of cramming it all at once, it's not as good of processing because it's it's like you're just remembering the answer. So you really do need to sort of forget in order to remember that process of solving the math problem is similar to good processing that causes learning. If you space it out, Mm. you get the good processing multiple times. If you mass or cram, you might get good processing for a little bit, but then after a while, it stops being as useful. I mean, this this still seems like things that, uh, going back to our kind of initial conversation Mm -hmm. about integrating this into early uh education this this seems like something that you're like well people might not be able to understand some of these concepts in first grade or whatever well teachers can certainly use something like spacing uh uh, from whatever age preschool you know Mm -hmm. and and um is that i i know you kind of mentioned um when you said you're on your soapbox i I do feel like it is an important soapbox Mm -hmm. i i'm like but I mean, part of the reason why I do this podcast is is because I uh, was very dissatisfied with my <laughs> with my my schooling and wish it would have been much different than it was. Um, but what what is the process to start trying to integrate some of these lessons into just the say the education of of teaching teachers and, and making making this a standard because it's all you know it's great that to talk about it on a podcast and right. have some listen but but it needs to be uh it, you know as we're developing new systems that are that are well tested and creating more success and and developing better teaching and retention mm-hmm. tools we, that needs to be we need to be adjusting our education system accordingly yeah so one so i'll give you some information about sort of what we think in terms of how much this is is infiltrating the k through 12 system mm-hmm. um and then what i think some of the solutions might be so um if you never learn it while you're in school how do you then know it when you become a teacher mm-hmm. In theory, it should be during teacher training programs. So when you when teachers are in their undergraduate degrees, learning these these strategies. Um, 
the National Council for Teaching Quality, the NCTQ, did an analysis. Now, this is not a perfect analysis by any stretch, um, but they went through and they pulled teacher training textbooks. So the textbooks that were being assigned to teachers, future teachers um, during their undergraduate careers, maybe graduate school too, but I think mostly undergraduate. And they analyzed the content in those books for some of the strategies that cognitive psychologists have identified as being particularly useful, spacing and retrieving being two of them. Mm-hmm. And there are six total. Um, we have a lot of information about them on our website. And they found that none of the books covered all of them. Very few covered, I think none of them really talked about retrieval practice, even though that's, you know, one of the older ones. Spacing, I think, was covered a little bit. Elaboration is covered a lot, although my dissertation was on. What was it? What'd you say? Elaboration? Elaboration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, elaboration, which has so many different meanings. My dissertation was on elaboration, so I have a love-hate relationship with it. Mm -hmm. Um, It... It's basically this idea of connecting what you know, uh, what you already know with the stuff that you're trying to learn, Mm. making additions and connections. Mm -hmm. They talked about elaboration a little bit, but the vast majority of these textbooks weren't covering these strategies. So it's not a surprise that then teachers don't necessarily know about them. One way to try to address that is um, continued professional development. But um, a a lot of academics we we like to write journal articles, and then every once in a while, an academic will say, oh, "I'm going to do something for the quote general public," and I'm going to, um, you know, I'll I'll write a piece or I'll do something, and it's very one way. I, the researcher who knows this stuff, am going to tell you, the teacher, what to do, and everyone should just listen to me because I'm an expert. And I really just don't think it's the best way to try to move forward because it it is one directional. It's not acknowledging that the teachers are in the classrooms every day and have a very good sense of what's going on in those classrooms. And frankly, they might be using some of these strategies a little bit already. Um, and and it, it's a little, it's condescending really, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, I think one of the things that we need to do a lot more of is to have what I mentioned before, this these two-way conversations where we're talking about what's going on in the classroom and what are we finding in the lab? And and then doing classroom research, which we do a fair amount of all of these strategies I'm mentioning have been tested in classrooms in controlled um, studies, not as highly controlled as we can have in the lab. There's a give and take there, um, which is why we need evidence from all of these different levels, the highly controlled work in the lab and the real classroom research. Um, but more conversations about this so that we can try to integrate it into the classrooms. And one of the things that's so cool about the strategies that fall out of cognitive research is that they can be flexible. Because we are doing these highly controlled experiments in the lab, we are determining cause and effect relationships. And we know what processes are the ones that are causing learning in different contexts. Mm-hmm. We know what the causal the causal mechanism is. And so when we're talking about strategies that can be used in the classroom, they can look a lot of different ways and they can be modified and tweaked for different circumstances. But we also know, okay, it's this one process. That's the thing that you can't change. So like I said, retrieval-based learning activities can look really different. Um, it could be taking practice tests, but it could also be you know, having the kids draw concept maps from their own memory or you know, teaching one another something, explaining something. There's a lot of different ways of doing it. 
We know that the thing that causes learning is the process of bringing information to mind, and you can integrate that into a lot of different activities. It's quite flexible. So I think more conversations and and more things like this with the podcast, but also, you know, conversations on Twitter. There are a lot of, they call them um, EDU chats on Twitter, where teachers and researchers come together and have conversations. Mm. I do have to admit, um, we have a Twitter account. It's at Ace That Test. Um, one of my colleagues manages it because I find Twitter to be extremely overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's really good at kind of managing these chats and things and just doing stuff like that, integrating the information into professional development. Um, so I travel around and and when I can give talks about this stuff and work with teachers and we go back and forth together to try to figure out how to integrate strategies into their classrooms given the constraints of the classroom. Mm. Um, One thing that teachers um, rightfully so uh, can become very concerned about is when we start talking about you know, how can we make sure that these things are going into the classroom? It starts to sound like, how can we mandate it? And mandating starts to sound like checklists. Mm -hmm. And the problem with the checklists is if the person if filling out the checklist doesn't know what they're looking for, um, they might be looking for a surface detail. So if they think retrieval practice involves writing, they might be looking for writing and miss the fact that a teacher might be integrating spacing and retrieval in a way that doesn't involve writing. Um, and and so I, I know that teachers become very concerned about the checklist because it becomes just, I have to do this thing, I have to do that thing. And the meaning behind it can be lost. So just more conversations and trying to to develop these ideas together. There are, there are definitely a lot of teachers around who are trying to integrate the science of learning into their practice. Um, in particular, there are many, many teachers in the UK who are interested in this. At least my experience has been that I've I've found more people in the UK who are interested, although it's possible that we just haven't figured out how to tap um, tap into the U.S. conversations as well. But there are it's, a lot of people doing this. Maybe it's just that we get a kick out of each other's accents, so they're just paying a bit more attention. That, that might be it. Yes, yes, maybe. <laughs> I when Whenever we go to schools um, in the U.K., the minute I open my mouth, they're like, oh, you're the American. You're here for the, you're here for the talk. Come this way. I'm yeah. like, okay, great. That might be a confound. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but I was kind of... I mean, I guess you sort of covered this because the question did occur to me. How how do you, in terms of a two-way conversation, the the relationship between researcher and teachers seems a little more like top down and then bottom up because you're you're you know, you have like a lab that just made some research discovery that is mm-hmm. that is say you know we figured out this pomodoro technique thing and you 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 focus for 25 minutes and you take a five to ten minute break and let's mm-hmm. try this for a while but, but now you're trying to get that out to you know thousands of teachers and then mm-hmm. and then get feedback how, how how are you getting appropriate feedback are there uh, are, are there like it's almost like teachers need representatives or something like that themselves to give. I, I well, know. there there is a there is sort of a position, I guess, or a, a role of um, quote science communicator, and there are people who have made their careers on this, where they say, "I'm the go between between the researchers and the teachers." Mm. So I'm the per I'm learning from the researchers and I'm learning from the teachers, and I'm going to be the one to integrate it all together. I think that's a nice idea, and it can it can work in some contexts. Um, in other ways, I wonder if we're just playing one big game of telephone, um, mm. where if the researcher is going to talk to 
a science communicator, why not just talk with teachers? And mm -hmm. you know, why, why do we need the middleman? I guess. Mm -hmm. And in some some days, I feel like that's really helpful. And other days, I wonder if um, if it's necessary. But sometimes I wonder if I'm necessary. Do we even need? Uh, look at your face. Uh, no, you thought I, mean, I was. I don't scary. think you're. I don't think that's the same thing. I don't think that's the same thing. I was making a joke. <laughs> I know you were. And I was like, oh no. You're just like, did I just insult him with that? No, I I have no inclination to become the middleman between <laughs> academia and um and uh, middle school teachers. Well, I think it would be different if you were interviewing me and then putting in a book and selling your book or something. That would right, be really right, different. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's going to take a really long time and it's going to take a lot of different people um from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different expertise. So, I mean, I was in school. I finished my bachelor's degree in four years which is supposed to be about how long it's it's going to take and then i did my master's in two and my phd in three which is actually pretty quick to get through um, a doctoral program and so you know that's nine years of being trained how to do this mm -hmm. someone else went to school for four maybe six years to be trained in teaching what person is going to go through both sets of training and then still have time and energy to then be a teacher and keep up with the literature, I just don't think it's possible. I mean, I can hardly keep up with the literature. So I really do think we need a lot of different types of people with different expertise to come together and try to figure it out. And I do think it's getting better. Like I said, we're invited all the time to go give talks and do professional development. And we're certainly not the only people who are doing professional development. There are podcasts like this, um, podcasts like mine, where we focus just on the science of learning. Um, but I'm sure you have many, many, many more listeners than we do, and you cover a lot of different topics. So I think it is getting better, and we're having more conversations, um, which is great. And I think we're breaking away from the mold of academics must only work on um, publications that are going to go into the journals because the concept of publish or perish mm -hmm. is, is a real thing. And in some institutions, if you're doing something else, if you're writing for the quote general public, um, then you could be spending that time writing a journal article or getting grant money. And so you're probably not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Um, I hope that that's getting better. And at least where I am at Rhode Island College, they greatly value the public outreach type projects and, and that sort of work in addition to teaching and doing research. And the more places that continue to value that, the better. Um. When you talked about how I have, uh, you know, my my show's a bit of a mixed bag. It's a mm -hmm. little, it's a little all over the place. Mostly life science stuff, but um, uh, it made me think of. I, I want to elaborate more on elaboration because mm -hmm. because one of the things that I love about doing this is I'm talking with someone about um, marketing or something like that, and then I recall something that some like. Uh, grasshopper researcher or something like that told me mm -hmm. that is somehow applicable and and I I see this these two ideas combining in this novel way and often when I when I do that I retain that information uh, better because uh, one I had a uh, I guess a, a new way of processing it but then it's I, I feel like it's uh, uh, one of the benefits of 
um, kind of using egocentrism for good is like, mm-hmm. ooh, I just came up with this novel idea. So then you remember it more because it was your own, your own thought. Yeah, making connections. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of at the heart of it. Elaboration is is making connections. Um, thinking about me- the meaning of things, although um, it gets into like the work from the 1970s on levels of processing, which um, is is pretty what we would call basic research, right? Learning lists of words, which is um, some pretty far removed from um, classroom learning. Um, although you can establish cause and effect relationships and then scale up, um, but sort of this idea of asking yourself like, well, how does this thing work or why does this thing work and and sort of digging in and trying to understand and connecting the the different pieces together is sort of the heart of how elaboration would work in a classroom setting or self-explanation. So there's research on people who, as they're kind of solving problems or, or doing things, they sort of self-explain to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. I have a hard time explaining what it is because I feel like everyone must do it because I do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are, I guess, people who don't naturally sort of self-explain like, okay, I'm moving the number over here because of X or whatever. Um, there's correlational research showing that people who naturally self-explain um, do better. Although mm-hmm. it could be that they are doing better because they know it better and that's what allows them to self-explain. So the mm-hmm. correlation doesn't tell us the causal direction or a causal relationship. But then there's been some research, I believe by Chi and colleagues, if I'm remembering correctly, from the late 80s, where they actually randomly assigned people and instructed one group and prompted them to do this self-explanation thing. And the other group, they sort of left alone. And the self-explaining group then did learn better than the other group. And of course, I mean, if I had been randomly assigned to the other group, I would have been doing my own self-explaining anyway. So it's probably actually a bigger effect than we're able to see in that type of study. But that making connections and sort of explaining it to yourself mm-hmm. as you go along, that um, that's really helpful. And that's kind of what, what elaboration is about. Mm. Yeah, I, I feel like comics do this all the time because they're always making metaphors for that. Mm-hmm. You, you take something from the news or something, and then you create a mm-hmm. metaphor as a, 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 um, a, a John Mulaney had a Netflix special um, where he um, he compared the the presidency to a uh, a horse um, a, a horse being. Um, let loose in a hospital uh, and, 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 and created all of these these metaphors that were this perfect way of, of you know, uh, subject matter, which is like, yeah, everyone has a Trump joke, everyone, you know, mm-hmm. every, we all get it. And most people don't want to even hear them anymore. And he had this novel way of doing it, but it was like, it showed this real um, clear uh, sense of understanding mm-hmm. in, in which he was able to kind of explain it to himself and then others in in this new novel way yeah and i I mean this is every comic does this all the time hey this is like this and we're comparing Mm -hmm. uh well and making concrete examples too that mm -hmm. everyone can sort of picture and that's another another one of the strategies creating uh, these concrete examples and um, importantly making the link between the concrete example and the maybe more abstract idea or even among a bunch of different examples um having being able to identify what components in each example sort of match up or link up to one another i will say um it sounds 
I know most teachers do use concrete examples in their teaching. One thing that we found is that more than one example is really important, and especially if those examples can have different surface features. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, novices tend to latch onto those surface features. So if I'm teaching, I, I would never, I don't teach economics, but let's say I was teaching about scarcity. I can give a concrete example about, you know, if I try to buy a flight now for March, they're going to be um, much less expensive than if I wait until the last minute. And we could talk about how that demonstrates scarcity. A student might be like, oh, yeah, scarcity, that's the plane thing. Well, the plane is just a surface detail. And if they don't then get what the link is, then all they remember is the plane thing. And if the exam question or the actual real life situation has to do with scarcity of a natural resource like water, they might not realize that scarcity is the principle. And so using a couple examples like plane tickets – Concert tickets, although those have similar surface um, details, so buying concert tickets is going to be similar to buy or buying a ticket to your show. We're, Shane. we're in uh, we're in the the Northeast right now. Lobster used to be uh, so abundant; you'd skip mm-hmm. it out, you'd feed it to prisoners because it was just like it was just so abundant, and, mm-hmm. and there was like prison prison riots because they were being fed too much lobster in some part of new england Um, and 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 now because it's more Mm -hmm. scarce Mm -hmm. uh the the price goes up now it's this novelty it's it's this like fine dining yeah well Um, and as the the heat moves up so the the air the prime area for lobster catching is that what you would hunting yeah. catching hunting yeah uh, you catch. procuring the lobster yeah. it's shifting up north I, my husband and i um for our one-year wedding anniversary went to portland maine uh-huh. um which you may not know but bon appetit rated them the number one food city in the country one year and Ooh. if you go to portland maine everyone will say did you know that bon appetit was <laughs> rated us then and we're like yes um but we did a food tour there and they it was about um gosh i wish i remembered it, it was really cool they did this whole thing about um Maine's ecosystem and getting the getting the food and sort of where it comes from and farm to table stuff and they you would go to a bunch of different restaurants and try little dishes they talked a lot about the lob the lobster current and how it's moving up and more difficult and Anyway, so, this is outside of my expertise. Yeah. So, but the point is, is you're you're teaching about scarcity. You oh, you yes. give this you give this financial example. Uh, you know, something concert tickets, planes. You you give a um, fun, maybe ecological yep. example, and then you you maybe talk about like the mating market or something mm-hmm. like that, and the law of scarcity. And you use a few different examples from a few different domains, and, and making like, it clear what that what the th- underlying threat is, what mm-hmm. the underlying link is, so that they really do grasp that uh, abstract idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fantastic. So um, in terms of, so w- when you say you went through um, this textbook, I'm, I'm forgetting, what was the textbook again that you went through to, mm. to like see what, what so they the, were doing right and what they weren't? What they were getting right and what they, oh, in terms of what strategies? Yeah. They, yeah. yeah so the National um, Council for Teaching Quality did a review. The report is from 2016 where they went through a bunch of different textbooks mm. and tried to identify those key strategies. So yeah. my question is, uh so they went through identified the key strategies but what about what about the ones that were the worst strategies the ones that they're like we got to get rid of these are are there are there were there any kind of um common mistakes that they found oh that's a really good question and i'm not sure i know the answer well how um, about just uh just generally are there are there common mistakes mm-hmm. that you'd say are made in um 
in just teaching generally or people's uh, just your average person's idea of of how you go about retaining, say, a book that you're reading? Yeah. So I'll tell you, students, I don't know if this would show up in teacher training textbooks or not, but um, uh, students will often try to cram by repeatedly reading information. Mm-hmm. Um, they repeatedly read it or they read it and then they try to obtain questions but what they do is when they get questions they look up the answers and write the answers and then they reread the question and the answer Mm. i see my students do this all the time um they will they'll make flashcards which is great but what they tend to do with the flashcards or at least i've seen it a lot is they've got a term on one side and a definition on the other of course we need them to know how to use the terms not just remember them Mm. but fine they'll kind of look at the term and they'll be like yeah that sounds familiar and then they flip it and they're like "Mm, yep that sounds familiar too and that's really just rereading yeah Yeah. and the pro the problem and the thing that i think we're really the reason why this continues is because the the fluency that you experience when you're reading something a second time it 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 tricks you into thinking that you are remembering it better because it is more familiar. It's easier to read. It's easier to understand. That drives up what we would call a judgment of learning, how well you'll think you'll perform later. And it makes students very overconfident. Hmm. Um, And then, of course, later on, having just repeatedly read the thing over and over again does not mean that you are going to, A, remember it on your own, be able to put it into your own words, or um, apply it in a new context, which are the, the things that we need our students to be able to do. And so, um, but but it's so seductive because it makes you feel like you're learning, whereas retrieval practice actually makes you feel kind of crappy. You're trying to remember and you can't remember everything. And that's frustrating and difficult. And so even if you convince, sometimes I'll convince students to try to retrieve a bit, but they don't like it. And they go back to the reading because they think that's what works for me, or this is, it's, I know that I'm learning better this way. The problem is that you see a complete flip. So if you ask, if you have in an experiment setting, have students repeatedly read or read and then try to produce the information recall. And then you say, how well do you think you'll do on a test later? The rereading group thinks they're going to do better than the group that practiced retrieval. So if you stopped there and just based it on what the students report, you'd actually think that the worst strategy was the best one. Mm. Of course, a week later, you bring them in and take have them take a test. The students who were repeatedly reading were way too overconfident. They performed quite poorly. The retrieval practice group, typically they were even slightly underconfident, but they're actually closer in terms of their predictions to how they actually perform. You see it flip. So that's part of the reason I think it's so difficult to get to get rid of this is because in the in the moment, in the short term, repeated reading makes you feel like you are learning more. And mm. it's just not true. What about I've I've heard that highlighting things mm. often doesn't work Mm-mm. because it because it kind of uh, and, and, and maybe we don't actually know what exactly the mechanism is that's uh, that's causing the problems but my my understanding is that the thinking is 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 you're you're almost kind of tricking your subconscious into being like okay i got this retained and uh th- this was the important part 
I have that because I highlighted it. It's now like in my mind or you, you go back and you just see like the one sentence that you is something like that. It, that. I mean, basically, the highlighter itself isn't bad the way we use the highlighter is. And it's to highlight it and then read it and say, aha, look, I'm going to remember it better uh-huh. now. Um, like what you said, um, you could use a highlighter for good. You could highlight <laughs> you could highlight. Uh, so let's see if you're going through a textbook and you come I up just, with a concept. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I now have like the superhero in my mind that mm-hmm. only uses highlighters. For only good. uses highlighters. for so. good. Yeah. Well, if you only highlighted like one word per paragraph and then you went back in your book and only looked at the word you highlighted and then kind of covered it and said, OK, what can I remember about this paragraph? That highlighted word hmm. now serves as a cue for you to practice retrieval. Oh. That could be good. Um, but just hmm. highlighting it and saying, look, it's highlighted now. I'm going to remember it better. It doesn't really work. And actually, there's a, a cool study by, I think, Rhodes and Castell from 2008. I might have the order of the authors wrong. But um, they did this thing where they showed people lists of words. Some of the words were in 12-point font and some were in 18-point font. Guess what? Size has nothing to do with whether or not you're going to remember the word later. But if you have them make judgments of how easy it will be to remember those words later, the judgments are higher for the 18-point font than Hmm. the 12-point font. Highlighting is probably pretty similar. Hmm. Putting it in bright yellow or orange or pink or whatever you're using um, is not actually helping you remember. I guess it could be okay if if you're using it to identify what the absolute key things are. You go back later and you, as a student, you re sort of look those key things over and then you put it away and practice retrieval and then you use the highlighted sections to go back and check because the checking, the feedback can be helpful too. Um, Retrieval in itself produces learning. These are what we would call direct effects of learning where the retrieval is actually causing learning itself. But there are some indirect effects where Retrieval causes something else, and that something else causes learning. So when you try to retrieve, it does give you feedback on what you know and don't know, and then you can go back and restudy. Mm. And then that restudy opportunity becomes more effective than it was before. We call that test-potentiated learning. Mm. Uh, the benefits of retrieval just sort of all pile on to make it kind of the the best strategy, the coolest thing. But um, you could use the highlighter to make it easier for you to go back and check because now you have the most important things highlighted. But that also requires you to know what the most important things are. So um, most of the time, you know, what you see is just students highlighting a whole lot of stuff and then thinking like, oh, I've I've got it now or oh, I'm going to go reread what I highlighted. And that's that's really just rereading. I have a kind of messy question about that. I mean, I imagine there's just too many variables to give a give a clear answer but i imagine you'd probably agree that say reading a chapter of a book and then afterwards kind of jotting down Mm -hmm. what you just learned from that chapter is uh is a good idea Mm -hmm. and a good is a good use of time and a great way to return uh, retain things understand them better but how do you measure that against uh, the, the time you're taking to do that against the time of just continuing to keep reading and getting more information in there is it is it mm-hmm. that you're uh, you know there's there's a trade off at some point yeah <laughs> you know like like would you is it is it better to spend uh, you have a you have a half hour of time to learn as much as possible from a book you can either read two chapters or read one chapter and spend the rest of that half of the time 
writing about what you learned from chapter one? Who walks away with more information in their head? I would guess, I, I'm pretty sure the retrieval practice group, because mm -hmm. we know that reading something once, I mean, I guess it depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to pass an exam that's in, like, let's say you're doing, you've got 30 minutes to learn. I think you said 30 minutes, right? And you can use whatever. And the exam number. is in 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. Probably cramming the two chapters is going to result in better performance on the exam because we know that cramming actually can work in the short term. Mm -hmm. That's another problem that that we face is that students keep doing it because it works with those yeah. exams. And, and but even the if the test you, is going to be, you have 30 minutes to read now and the test is actually going to be six months from now. And oh, you retrieval don't get to, for sure. Okay. Because when you read something once, you forget it right. so quickly. You can read five chapters. It's not going to matter. Mm -hmm. You're not going to remember all of that. Um, retrieving solidifies it. It makes it more flexible. It makes you more durable. And um, I know that there's, I mean, there's a finite amount of time that we can spend in school to try to get across everything that we need in order for students to be successful, both on those, you know, the standardized tests, which of course, retrieval is not the same as a standardized test mm -hmm. and standardized tests are their own, their own beast. Um, or, you know, board exams or um, just even the amount of information you need to carry on with your life. There's a finite amount of time, but we are probably not going to remember everything. And so we should spend time making sure that the things that are the most important we actually do retain. I, I mean, if you have a hundred things that you need a student to learn in order to take some, some um, standards test, do we want them to know a hundred things sort of, or maybe they're going to forget half, but we don't have any control over which half because it's going to be somewhat random because we've tried to teach all 100 sort of in serial order, or should we pick the 75 that are the most important and focus on those? And maybe now the things they remember are at least more likely to be the most important. And it's a tricky question, but I think it would probably be better to target the things that are going to be the most essential or at least the key building blocks so that um, we have a little more control over which things the students are going to forget. Hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, but that, I, that's a really tricky question. And I also know that many teachers are not allowed to do that. And there's a very set curriculum and they're supposed to teach that curriculum and they have X amount of time to do it and they must cover everything. And so it is what it is. Mm. But if I was a student on my own, studying on my own, I would take the things that I thought was were most important and try to practice retrieval with those. And frankly, I mean, everything's connected when you're learning about in a specific topic. And so when you're retrieving information about what you think is the most important stuff, you might also be kind of connecting and building in those other details as well. Hmm. the the quote-unquote smaller pieces that that maybe you don't think are as important well one thing that i don't want to forget is that i have my guests each week plug a nonprofit of their choice did you have one in mind yeah so i'm gonna plug plan uh planned parenthood even though that doesn't actually have much to do with um with my research yeah. but i think it's extremely important Fantastic. Um, and in this in this political climate as a female i would just like to plug planned Absolutely. parenthood yeah uh you're you're one of many guests to plug Plan yeah. parenthood it's a wonderful organization yes um i so, um, Megan Samaraki. Yes. What did we learn today? What what were what were the most important things? Well, you can go ahead and uh, try to retrieve. Oh, what can, what boy. can you remember? Well, we learned about retrieval. We learned about um, uh, the 
um, elaboration. And we learned in between that, we learned about spacing, mm-hmm. um, to space out retrieval and, uh, and, and, um, elaboration. Um, I think that, um, uh, taking, taking, I, I mean, granted, this is one of the last things that we talked about, but, but for me, I, mm-hmm. that, that was for my, for my personal, as I'm going to be listening to an audiobook, uh, uh, on my seven hour drive after this. And, um, and it just in terms of me having to read various science books and stuff all the time, mm-hmm. that is a big question that I ask myself all the time is like, should I read more? Or should I spend a lot more time on retrieval? And I think that was pretty conclusive um, there. That I think spending so. more time maybe writing to accompany your your reading will probably help both your writing and reading, and probably make you uh, more interesting in social situations and stuff. Yeah. As well as well, and and benefit your uh, your life. Teach others, explain. Yeah. And um, and I sure hope that we start having um, more involved two-way conversations yes. between researchers, uh, the learning researchers, and teachers. And um, that was it. We didn't learn anything else. Oh, well. You're, miss- <laughs> you're missing one. Concrete examples. <laughs> oh, concrete examples right. of things. And, oh, I was just making a joke. Oh, okay. I, knew, I, knew I, I, took you very, I take people very literally. I'm like, no, you learned one more thing. What was it? We talked about four of the strategies. This is like the time that my mom would ask me what we learned after a church. See what I did there as a callback. I used a concrete example. It was a metaphor, but you can't just use one because then it's a surface level thing. I think I know everything now. You do. You're an expert. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And um, and everybody, please check out the Learning Scientist podcast. And what was the the website with all of the research or, or, or resources? Rather? Yes, learningscientists.org. And uh, you, you guys can go to the here we are a podcast.com website where there will be no resources for <laughs> you at all. I do not have the time to put all of that stuff up, but you can go to my website in case you're forgetting, um, uh, learning science scientists.org and there will be a link there i can do that for you thank you Um, so um so that's something but uh, this was uh this was terrific i i really think that this is uh you know a podcast for a bunch of lifelong learners and adults who are mostly out of school but would like to be smarter people uh i think this is one of the more important topics um that we could talk about so i appreciate you and good luck with all of your various projects and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you next week Next week on the Here We Are podcast, things are a bit uncertain. I have a I have a bunch of episodes in the bank, but uh, I'm actually going to start. You're going to be getting a whole lot more Here We Are podcasts. Uh, at the time that I'm recording this, I'm putting together a schedule of uh, I'm, I'm scheduling a whole bunch of guests to do a bunch of um, Corona adjacent um, kind of episodes, so related but just not the same stuff that you hear every everywhere else. And we're gonna hear from actual scientists. Um, actually people that um, have a better idea of, of what's going on and of uh, reality 
and not just uh, the people who um, are unfortunately um, seemingly uh, in, in charge of our lives and governments who, uh, who are trying to create their own works of, of fiction and create their own realities. And so, uh, so I, I hope you'll stay tuned for that. And not only am I increasing my science communication, but I'm using this time off the road to increase the other aspects of what I do, which is lots of comedy. I am turning up the, I took, I took like a two or three year break um, from, from social media. And I had been, I started in November of last year, um, uh, figuring out some plans to get back into it and increase my digital presence um, because I was, I was ready to start doing that again. And I have a ton of content already ready to go and I'm creating a lot more each day. Um, so I have a, a basically a dormant YouTube account that I, I've never really really used gonna start posting YouTube videos I've been Instagramming a lot more I've been tweeting like crazy and uh, so if you're if you're out for for checking out um, some more of my online um, content and hearing more from me please go and check that out and also it's a wonderful time to go to um, uh, check out my, my documentary, Psychonautics, the comics exploration of psychedelics, which is uh, on Amazon Prime for free. You can check out some of my old albums on Spotify or whatever service uh, that you have. If you, if you have Spotify already, then th that's free as well. And there's uh, maybe watch, watch some old videos, that sort of thing. Throw a thumbs up on there. Leave a nice comment. Write a review. There's there's a lot of great stuff you can do. You can support me on Patreon if you want. If you don't have the money uh, to give right now and things are tight, then don't. Um, uh, things are things are tight out there, and I, um, you know, I I hope uh, I I hope things get a whole lot better soon. Um, but if things are tight for you, then please don't worry about um, donating to my Patreon. But if you have, if you are. Uh, 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 a better person than I and you have a big savings account <laughs> and um, and you've always been like hey how how do I support the people that I like you can always go on to patreon I don't I just don't I simply don't like the idea of hiding things behind a paywall for people not to see so I don't I, I just don't like the idea of like making a bunch of bonus content where only the people that pay this subscription I might have to do that Eventually, I don't know how this world is going. I just really don't like that idea at all. I want I want everyone to be able to consume everything that I do that wants to, and so hopefully the people that can afford it um, uh, can help out. But you know, there's a lot of people out there in way worse situations um, than than I'm in. I'm uh, I'm more worried about my team and the people that uh, that I pay um, to do work for me. Than, uh, than I than I am myself um, because the the machine is stretched thin um, right now. But um, so with that, um, if you want to uh, if you want to do whatever you can just to kind of spread the word about some of the maybe some of the past here we are podcast episodes that were your favorite. If you want to share those with friends or on social media or anything like that, that would 
that that's the sort of thing that would really help me out it's free for you to do you have the time to do it right now and so uh so that that would be that would be a really really great thing um to see a little bit more of that and in return i am going to give you my all i have been working um 12 hour days just um creating uh figuring out um everything that i can uh to navigate um this this situation to get more content out there to get more information out there for you guys and do it in a fun and entertaining way and provide some laughs and everything else too along the way so um check out what i've been doing check out my instagram check out my facebook check out my twitter um my my uh, twitter's a little more stream of conscious uh stuff so if you uh if you if you are at risk of getting annoyed with me (laughs) i would stay away from twitter um but uh but other than that my instagram is which which i just started really doing in november I'm, I'm starting to curate more and come up with some ideas and making some fun videos and um you know comedians um comedians use uh, uh, comedians like myself anyway have have used humor as a coping mechanism through their entire life and now that there's uh, a whole bunch to cope with um you know that that uh that machine really gets going and so i've I've, uh, at the time I'm recording this, I have been as creative as I've, as I've ever been. Um, so, uh, a lot more stuff, um, coming your way. So, uh, thanks for the support. And I, I wish I had all the right words <laughs> to say, um, at a, at a time like this. Um, but I don't. And so, um, my, uh, much, much like the world is always changing and flexible and and adapting, I'm uh, my ideas about this and how to how to navigate the future are going to change quite a bit as well. So I I don't uh, um, I've I've been um, still just kind of sitting back and and assessing the situation and figuring out what exactly I think about it. So um, lots more to come. Things are going to develop real quickly i'm going to also start doing these remote podcasts i'm going to start doing them um so there's a video component as well so you can see me you can see my guests um so i think that'll be fun and uh yeah those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites
Scarpins Audio, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.